Hey, hi everyone. Thank you so much for listening to Beyond Eight Figures. This is AJ, the journeyman entrepreneur with another Beyond Eight Figure episode for you. On the show, we talk with top entrepreneurs about the realities of building an eight-figure business, what success really means to them, and hear from them about some of their winning strategies and tactics. Tune in to each episode to learn how to grow your business beyond 10 million, and more importantly, create your own personal legacy. Today, we're going to talk about success, not one-off success, but what it takes to achieve an ongoing body of success in your entire life, both your business and personal. Success doesn't drop from the clouds. It's hard work, but most importantly, it's a journey, a journey of both business and personal growth. Today's guest clients call her the entrepreneur's secret weapon. Diane Prince is a whirlwind of productivity, intelligence, and empathy. She's started up over seven companies, produced 300 million in revenue, had five successful exits, and hired over 2,000 people. I've gone crazy just trying to hire over 30 people for some of my own company, so this is going to be really a great episode. With 25 years of experience as an entrepreneur, she strongly believes that increasing her team's knowledge and using counseling for growth is worth investing in. Though, most importantly, every entrepreneur has their own why, and they have to be true to that. Nowadays, her mission is to demystify the startup world for first-time entrepreneurs, all while helping them create growing, sustainable business. Let's welcome Diane Prince to the show. I am an entrepreneur, among other things. Um, And most notably, I started and scaled the company and sold it in six years by bootstrapping it from zero to $50 million in annual revenue in six years. Wow. Easy, it sounds. <laughs> yeah. I mean, only six years. That's, that's what? You just added $10 million a year? You don't even have a dog here. You don't even have a dog <laughs> And so you've had a few other businesses as well, uh, varying levels of success there. And you're a coach as well now? So what I'm doing now, yes, I am. And I decided actually during COVID, I've coached and mentored in different ways for many years. And I decided to officially start a business coaching entrepreneurs and founders. And really what 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 I'm building is a business to help founders make the journey easier. So I'm building out classes and tools And in the meantime, I'm coaching one-on-one individual entrepreneurs. I love that because that's really what the show's about, is that entrepreneurial journey. I I was going through your site, and you wrote something that really resonates with me because I see it all the time, and I don't have your experience. But you wrote that you had... Um, a business coach come in and you were kind of digging into his experience and what they brought into it. And you realized that he hadn't walked the walk that you had. He hadn't been through your journey and you wanted to bring that experience to others. And that was really cool to me. How do you see that changing or how do you think that impacts your coaching Wow, with your yeah, and that's really what inspired me to to start this. I was um, sitting in a room with this consultant or coach, as you mentioned, and I just started asking. I just started poking around and looking at the things that he had done. And I mean, he was he was very good. And um, and then I looked around at other coaches, and I started thinking about it, and it it just made no sense to me. It was like, you know, if you wanted to learn how to how to swim, would you hire someone who's never jumped in a pool, you know, hope not. (laughs) So I just, I, I thought, well, and I have taught and I have a lot of experience. So the difference is when I talk to my clients, when I work with them, they ask me a lot of questions about my own experiences. Like yesterday I was talking to a young entrepreneur about an issue she was having with the co-founder 
And I've been through so many different iterations of these things that the founders I work with are going through. So a lot of times they want to hear what my experiences were. And I have a ton of experiences, 23, 25 years of experiences on what worked and what didn't. And I can also relate to the mentality and the feelings of entrepreneurs, especially if it's the, the CEO is generally the person mm-hmm. I work with. Sometimes I'll work with teams, but sometimes the things that we talk about, sometimes it's it's the business model and and, and in that consulting mode and, and how should I charge or, you know, or, or working on the, the pitch deck and things like that. But other times it's really... Um, being really overwhelmed and having maybe having a spouse that doesn't doesn't can't relate to that or there's no one you could really share with because your your co-founders are maybe minority partners and so a lot of it is i i can relate to that actual feeling of what it's like going through the entrepreneurial journey yeah when i talk with people and I hear from experience, you hear the gut, you hear the pain. I always like to say, it's like everything that's worthwhile that I've done has been through a gazillion mistakes. Do you find that because of that, the type of clients you take on, you look for a specific type of client or does that have an impact on the type of clients you're looking to take on? I find that the clients I have, are, it's, it's, I think it's whoever's really attracted to what I have to offer, honestly, because I have, I I, I didn't know what, I had an idea of what my, my client avatar would be when I started, but it really wasn't, it didn't exactly turn out that way. And it was, it's been very interesting. So half of my clients are pre-revenue and half of them are in that like revenue around a million dollars looking, looking to scale. And so that's interesting to me, at least, because you're very big on cash flow, uh, at least from the talk I've heard. And so the whole idea of you working with pre-revenue, tell me a little bit about that, and then we'll get into the big $50 million play uh, shortly after. How did you get your first revenue? Uh, And alongside that, how are you helping others get through that pre-revenue stage? Yeah. Uh, yeah, I know because, you know, a lot of people think, well, startups don't have money. So, and a lot of people can't afford me. You know, a lot of people I do, I do a free 30 minute session and sometimes they get what they need. I have testimonials from my free 30 minute sessions, which is great for me too, because I feel like being kind of being on the street, it's helping me to build tools for other entrepreneurs because things come up. And so there's some people who probably, uh, 80% so can't afford me, but other ones are in the same financial situation and they're like, I can't not do this. So to me, I have made so many mistakes that have either cost me multi-millions of dollars and in one case a business. And I believe that those could have been prevented if I had had somebody like me to work through to work through that. So I really feel like it's it's not a huge investment based on what they get out of it. And some of my clients they've said it's the best investment I made in my company. That's someone who who is pre-revenue and sometimes you know they're working, so they have they have jobs and uh, they see it as an investment. Yeah. I mean, if you can write off an MBA, you should be able to write off a business coach. Yeah. <laughs> Exactly. And I offer, I, I've been offering bonuses, bonus sessions and things like that. And I also, I'm also uh, have like a panic button so people can kind of contact me in between sessions. So you have a bad feel. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Let's talk about on staff. You grew it from nothing well, you started it from that. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> no, that, yeah, that is the, the best. You created it. I love the story. You created it out of force of will. Yes. Why? Why? So I I was married at the time. My ex-husband was my business partner. And we wanted, we, for us, it was about, we wanted to spend time together. 
and we wanted to, so we wanted to start a business together. And then it became an obsession to see if we could build it, scale it and sell it. Was there a difference between like, oh, let's scale this and then let's sell it? Or was it like, oh my God, we have something, let's scale it and sell. Was that all one process or was that kind of like step-by-step step as you were going through that? It was in, our, it was written in our business plan. So we actually had in our business plan that we are going to, we didn't, we, we had that we were going to um, scale it and so we were, that we were going to sell it within five to 10 years. So from day one, it was built to sell. Correct. And is that something that you encourage others to do now, even if they're not planning on selling? Uh, do you think that made a difference to the way you scaled and grew the business? I don't encourage others to have any particular or specific outcome because everybody different. Everybody has a different reason or a different why, which it sounds kind of trite, but I, I truly believe in the why. It's so important. Because if you have, if you if you're deeply connected to your why, you will do anything to get to get there. What I believe is that everyone on the bus, right, is or rocket ship or whatever it is you're building. Vehicle of choice. Yeah. <laughs> um, everybody needs to have the business has to be a vehicle to help them to get to where they want with their what they want personally. And so then is that the, uh, is that the why? Yes. Mm -hmm. What if people don't know their why? Or how do you know that everyone has a real why to be aligning with? Well, I do work with people on, on finding their whys. So it, people might not think that they have a why and they might, it's always interesting when people, their first, sometimes the first addition of their why is not really their why. So it might be a lot of times you'll hear people say they want something for their kids or something for their partner. And then there's so many layers. Sometimes that might not be true. It might be just something that they feel like they should want. So you might not know your why right away. And a lot of people go around never knowing. And if you do the work and figure out what it is and realize it might change, but get to understand. So say if it's, if it's to take care of your, your partner and retire and what, what does that feel like to you? So it's really getting into like, what does that, what does, what the words that you're saying, what does that actually mean to you? And is it motivating and helping you to keep on going? And I do, I do believe people need it. In order to in order to do the kinds of things that we're talking about, I think it would be extremely difficult to build an eight-figure business without a strong connection to your why. Do you see the connection to your why changing over that journey? Because for me, I remember like being amazed when I passed a million bucks, like, oh my God, this happened. How did this happen? And then all of a sudden it kept going. And I thought it was so easy until I got to what I would, yeah, I think it's called crossing the chasm. There's a gazillion, but that, that like four and a half, five million up to about 7 million, you know, with my last bit where it was just like, oh, uh, this sucks. Every, and I lost my connect. I know for a certain when I sold my last business, I had lost connection with my why in the business. I was just like, get me out, done, <laughs> burnt, crisp. <laughs> But, you know, how, how did you see that? Did it stay the same or did it, did you find ways to reconnect as that journey went through? Well, it, it's, it's interesting what you said, because you had mentioned to me before we were recording that you wanted to always wanted to get to eight figures and pass seven figures. And as you're building, as you're, you start scale and, and prepare for an acquisition, there's always, there's different challenges at every phase of the business. And it's something I see very often is that stage where you just want to get this thing off your back. So that's part of that entrepreneurial journey and, and the work. So it's really, it's, it, and 
it, that happened to me when we were, we almost sold, we had a deal that fell apart at, during 9-11. And at that point, before that deal, all I wanted was to get this business away. Like I just, it was so stressful because there's so many phases and you're, as an entrepreneur, it's very exciting to start a business and, but, but each, each stage is a completely different, it's a different skill set. It's a different person. You know, I mean, it's one thing to be a kid. So I say I, I was in my twenties. So, you know, it's one thing to be a 20 year old starting a business. It's another to all of a sudden be chairman of the board of a $50 million business. It's just a completely like you're building these things that are not normal as an entrepreneur. And it's not, and all of a sudden you have, you have employees and we had, we had thousands of employees and, and there's so much, you know, sometimes when, when we were having cash situations, there were, there were thousands of people relying on us and that was really stressful. And I was also having babies and I mean, there were all, there were a lot of other things, but I think that AJ, that, that's kind of the moment is getting through that. And maybe if, because when we sold it, you know, I said to you, it's like, when you, when you have an eight-figure business, you want a nine-figure business. And when we sold it, we thought, what would have happened if we would have held on for five more years? It probably would have been a nine-figure business. You brought up something just now that I'm really interested in personally, the different skill sets to grow the business. Because the big one I always think of is a founder versus an operator. Uh, managing the running of a business totally different. How do you see those skill sets break down on the path from zero to one to five to ten to fifty million or beyond? I, I think that part of what makes me be able to scale is that I am not a perfectionist, and I am very able to let go and empower other people. So it's because two. To someone who's a visionary and all of a sudden you're like, at one point with a subsequent company, I found myself acting as CFO for a few months. And that was just a nightmare. <laughs> I mean, I was, that was a 35, that was a um, work way. We were at $35 million and I'm like, I had no, no clue. It was crazy. But, um, I've always, or from my experience, I've always been, I've always been hiring, looking for people when I see good people who could be a fit finding places for them because team team is so important. And it's in, and, and when an entrepreneur gets to that point from the visionary to actually then, wow, we're, we're, you know, when at that point when we're all of a sudden we were like, we're billing $20,000 a, a month, that, that's, that's a million dollars. You know, that was our, that was the first, our first year. We we're like, wow. Uh, but then that operator role can really be a nightmare if, because most most visionaries don't have that skill set. And I take it you see yourself as a visionary? I do. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I don't like the weeds. <laughs> How do you find that operator then? How do you pick your partners, your co-founders, even just the advisors and the other members of your board? Yeah, it goes back to the why. So everybody, when I've had success, I've had successful partnerships and employees and, and unsuccessful ones. And the most successful ones have their connection and their reason why they have the seat on the bus. So for example, when we brought on our first co-founder at, at OnStaff, I was, I was having my first baby and we, we just realized like we needed other people to, to come on this I was going to say train, like <laughs> I don't know, whatever it is, but, but journey. Okay. Yeah. So mm-hmm. we, and, and yeah, yeah, exactly. That goes back to the advisors though. So we had from the very beginning, we started building up an, uno, an unofficial advisory board. And the first one was a lawyer that my father knew. I mean, it was a personal, personal referral. And then we outgrew him and he referred us to somebody else. So we, there, we had a network of advisors who brought in other people and introduced us. 
And then we did have our main, our main kind of guide through this was an investment banker. And so he had seen, he had the experience seeing exits and deals. And so we would go to him once a quarter and ask him what was next. You know, we went with to him from the very early, very early stages and said, this is where we're at. This is where we want to go. And he would sit down with us and, and, and direct us. And he had suggested bringing on because he knew what our goals were. And we actually wanted to retire. We didn't want to stay in the company. That was not our goal. So he introduced us to our first co-founder who actually his his why at the time, he wanted to be, and we were in staffing, and he wanted to be the CEO of a publicly traded staffing company. That was his goal. We did not want to be in a staffing company. We wanted to go be sipping margaritas on the beach. <laughs> so, and then we did, we brought on an excellent operator who happened to be a client of ours. So he knew, he knew our niche and we just observed how, I mean, he was so hard on us. <laughs> as a client, but we, we really valued the way that he worked. So we got to see how he worked and he, he was an excellent operator. Now, I like how you mentioned that very early on you had started prepping. What was that experience like? Was it, Hey, here's where we are against our KPIs. What should we be looking for? What was sort of the guidance you were getting in that early stage, you know, with this advisor, directionally towards selling the company? It was more, it was more high level than KPIs. I think it was more, but we were such sponges because we knew, we really knew nothing. I mean, we, we just, and we, and we owned that. Not to our clients, of course. (laughs) You're the expert of the experts, yes. But behind closed doors, we were very open to advice. I love it how you had mentioned in an earlier interview that when you started the company, you bought a um, dummy's guide to temp agencies. I started my first one that I only sold for a million so with dummy's guide to HTML. It was a web development. I had been doing other things and someone said, do you know how to do a website? We'll pay. And I was like, yes, I do. <laughs> so I love how you started with that, but yet made it into something. Along the side of advice, the fact that you started with written advice, but one of the things that really stuck with me that I also do is not writing down a lot of the ideas people give you until they get given to you enough that they bubble up. And I was wondering what made you start doing that? Because normally the advice that gets given to entrepreneurs is write down all the advice that all these smart people give you use it all, bring it all in, but you obviously have a more clarified opinion on the matter. Feedback can kill you. It's, it can kill a business and it's, it's, it'll just distract you. And, and so it's one thing to ask for advice. And by the way, when you ask for advice, it doesn't mean that you have to follow that advice. So asking for advice, like I, I, one business that I started was a a job board in my in my niche. So it was a, a real estate title insurance related job board. So it was sort of like monster.com, but very niche. And when I started it, I brought in an advisor from Silicon Valley. And it was this was in 2000. So it was very beginning of all the 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 first internet boom. And he came and sat with my team and was telling us about building market share. And you don't really, the thing to do, he said, is not, is not build, a, don't worry about the profit, just, get, just gain market share. That's what you need to do. And a lot of businesses were doing that and we just didn't follow his advice. You know, that wasn't, that wasn't our path. We wanted to create, we, it was working for us to create businesses that brought in money. <laughs> And it just didn't, it didn't seem to make sense. And so we, we ignored his advice. And so the, yeah, I referenced the the book Rework, which I read well after, you know, it was published well after I had sold my company. And 
every chapter makes so much sense to me because they say things like that. Like don't, don't take feedback. When you know with feedback, once, when you hear it enough times, you'll know it's the right thing to do if it is. I really like that because it ties back to what you said about looking and then deciding to be the coach who's actually done the experience that you want people to do. I know my strength is growth and marketing and, you know, that type of fun, but from a very analytical. And I'm constantly amazed at the amount of noise there is out there around what you should do. So I disagree completely about writing everything down. To me, it's what is your core? What is your, what drives you? And then you align everything from there. One of the things that, you know, in mentioning rework, you had mentioned the alchemist free. Um, that it came into came in to have a really an impact when you were looking to sell the company and everything. Would you kind of you know maybe explain that how this is, or maybe other books that had an impact on both your entrepreneur journey and your personal journey there? Yeah, and I read The Alchemist after years after I had I had sold that company. The thing I love about that book, I mean, you're that it's he's on a journey and he's open to things that are that are changing. Like when we had that deal that fell through and I was in that moment where I was just honestly, I thought I, I thought I was I was crawling up in a ball. Like I just thought that I could not go on with this business any further. It just seems so it was so stressful and so just so enormous and I had to dig into tools that I could find to help me get through it. And that was, that was, I think, the first time I went into therapy, which was really helpful. And now I'm aware of so many other tools and books and things like that to, that, that helped me. And so that was right around, right after 9-11, right? And at that point, how large was the business? Was it at the 50 million mark? It was. Mm-hmm. Okay. So you were big, you're at scale, the defining moment, at least as a millennial, literally the defining moment that splits my generation into the next generation occurred. And now we're in another time very similar to that, where it's COVID season. And we've had this lockdown, we've had this shift, we've had this stress. And I think there's a lot of uncertainty as we look ahead. If there's one thing I remember from that time and that matches up to now for me is we don't know what's next. So how did you go about navigating through not only the stress, but through all of those other people in the business and all of this? Yeah, I mean, it, it cannot have been a fun time. And I can imagine therapy was not the only tool. <laughs> yeah, it was, yeah, I didn't have that many tools back then. I just, I just was grinding. So it was a real, it was a really tough time, and it was just the executive team that was part of our our, our general. Our company didn't know what was going on, so it was just the it was just the very senior level people that were involved in the deal. So as far as the rest of the, the rest of the team, they were, they were unaware. It wasn't, it wasn't appropriate for them to know at the time. It wouldn't have served them to really know. They all, um, and they all ended, did end up getting, getting nice, um, nice checks at the end when we sold our company. To get through those times, though, because it was difficult, if, well, I heard a, a, a speaker once talk about how you must create your own drama in your company to to avoid drama in the office with the drama that you don't want because there will be drama and you must create the drama that you want. So so a lot of what I what I read now and what I hear. So I'll when I'm listening to speakers, I'll either I'll either say, oh, that that didn't make sense to me. That sometimes it just sounds like things that people say, right? Because they read it and these coaches that have never run a business, but that I was, sometimes I'm like, that's it. That's, that's why people followed us to the next business. And that's why 
we had this solid team. So because they were all our team, including the, the people that are the branch managers and things like that, that, that weren't aware of the deal, they were though, they were very involved in our story and where the company was going, which was, was building. I mean, we were building this, this huge company and they ended up, most of them stayed on after the acquisition, got great, great jobs. It you know, skyrocketed their careers. And then they came back when we started another company. Uh, but yeah, so I hope that answers your question. But what I, what I see differently now, because so there are, there are similarities between COVID and 9-11, but now we have so many other ways to build businesses and timing is the most common factor that to determine if a startup is successful or not. There's a, Bill Gross has a TED, Ted talk on that. But right now, I mean, it, just looking at like GoDaddy's stats, they, have, they reported Q3, Q3 revenue topped expectations. Q4 growth is higher than it's ever been for small people starting small businesses. So COVID, after that initial kind of feeling paralyzed, people, there's so much, it, it just shifted. It sh- a lot of people lost their jobs and, st- and are starting businesses. Or It just shifts the way that people are thinking, like AJ's in Spain. I mean, it's like everybody's, I think, looking at different ways that they can work, and it's really bringing out a lot of entrepreneurs. Yeah. Things are going from the fringe sort of like, oh, I heard about that, or yeah, someone's doing to like, okay, why not? The powers that be don't you are know, not existing as much as I think just even a year ago. You know, there's a definite drive to look at new business models or to be more aggressive with how you treat dealing with business models. What are beyond just taking advantage of the turmoil? What are you seeing as opportunities in this time? Well. One interesting trend I'm seeing is market-driven solutions to national or global problems. So like, for example, Live Nation has, so obviously, I mean, they're ticket sales, right? And that's, so it's been terrible for them. So now they're creating a testing, they're basically like TSA for concert goers. So they're creating, I don't know if you guys saw that, but they're pivoting so that now they're, they're providing COVID tests and providing that information so that concert goers can actually go or not. That is really cool. Using what lemons you have, turn it into something interesting. And I want to make sure that we do get to cover the actual process of selling as well, because I know that's, that's what we're really here to talk about. So you ended up selling the business. Walk us through that process. You knew you were going to sell from the beginning. You got big enough. You decided to sell. What did you do from there? How you took it to market, how you eventually found the acquiring partner, how you knew it was a good deal. So, Michael, I've been through, I, and I have been through several exits, so I can share the experience about on staff, and I can share some other experiences because I've, I've done, I've sold businesses in very different different ways. With OnStaff in particular, we, we worked with an investment banker, which is a very expensive process, but can also bring you the best value for your business. So I think it was very helpful and important to do that in my, in my first acquisition. So basically they write a book, which it's called a book, which is sort of like a, a, a very detailed pitch deck with all of the information. And they basically go sell it out to strategic buyers, private equity partners. And it wasn't really, it wasn't a VC kind of a situation. So it was mostly private equity partners and strategic buyers. And then companies express interest. And then you look at the deal and they'll typically offer, we would have, We'd have our term sheet and what we wanted, but they'd always come back with what, what they were, you know, what they would offer. And so 
we felt like that first that first deal that ultimately fell through, we were really excited about that. And this is maybe this is part of where the alchemist came in because we were so excited about that deal. It was the it was the holding company that owned monster.com and they were buying a whole bunch of staffing companies at the time and monster.com wanted to have a staffing division and so we were really excited about that opportunity. It sounded fantastic and uh, but a lot of the deal was was in stock. So, but we did, that was the deal that we were going with because it was, it was exciting. It was, it was exciting to, to, we, we felt like the equity was going to be worth, so, worth a lot. And, and there was, there was obviously cash involved too. And whenever, sometimes my clients ask me about that and earnouts and how that works when you sell a company, you should always assume that the cash that you get up front is it, that you're, you're not going to get anything else. Um, so when that deal, they were actually their team from, they were, they're, they're a New York company and their team was in physically in our CPA's office in LA from their Ernst and Young team who were in the, from the office at the world trade towers. They were in our CPA's office on nine 11 in LA when that happened. Then after that, we actually decided that we were going to, because of the world situation, it wasn't the time that we were going to sell the company. So we decided after we brushed ourselves off and went through the therapy <laughs> and the, you know, <laughs> uh, mourned as, as the world did what happened, we brushed ourselves off and we decided it, it looks like it's time to, to, scale more. So we just thought, well, it's time to hunker down, put regroup, put everything we have emotionally, financially back into the business and and grow it more. So the strategy that we had decided was to buy other companies. And we hired someone to join our company and to look for other companies for us to buy. And it was, I think it was his first phone call and he called, he called a business broker and they said, no, but actually we have a company that might be interested in buying you. And we talked about earlier in this, in this podcast, we talked about the whys and the company that they had in mind was, it was a, a publicly traded staffing company and it was right after the internet, the like the first tech bust, and yes. <laughs> they, and their, their their CEO wanted to retire, and she wanted to find someone to run her business. It was she wanted a CEO, and so she thought that the strategy would be to buy a company and have and basically buy a CEO along with it. So it all somehow and remember that was what our first co-founder's goal was was to be the CEO of a publicly traded staffing company and everybody everybody got what they wanted it was one one thing though you had asked about the process it's not an easy process so even even when we had this just this one buyer and we were working with our investment banker he was awesome because we were like what one of our CPA had told us you, the deal's going to fall through at least three times. And you have to have such an iron stomach during these things. And my whole, my, my, I, I basically, it took about, I guess it, it, I think the whole thing took eight or nine months before it closed. And I, that was a hundred percent my job was this deal. So it was all of the details. It was really complicated. I should show you the picture. I have a picture of the files of, of my, at my attorney's office. It's an entire conference table of Manila files that we had to sign. <laughs> I did much smaller deals around and they were crazy. So yours must have been insane. 
Oh, God. And oh, there were wow. times, and we, we probably could have gotten more money, but there were times, and, and our investment banker would make us kind of, we, we'd be like, no, just do it. Just sign it. You know, it's, it's fine. It's fine. And he'd be like, no, like, like 500, like an extra half a million dollars is a lot of money. We'd be like, no, 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 like just, we just wanted it to happen, you know? So he kept on pushing back. And then, um, and then, I mean, there were so many moments where we thought it was going to fall through up until the very end. What was your way of celebrating that it actually? Or oh what? my gosh! Uh, yeah. So okay, this is crazy. So well, first when we when we were waiting for the deposit to hit our bank account, our personal account, and we had we had two little kids then, so they were they were uh, three and one, and we had I we were actually at Toys R Us, me and my husband. The way the kids weren't with us, I don't think. We were at Toys R Us and just waiting for the money to hit. <laughs> I don't know why we're at Toys R Us. That's so weird. But then then all of a sudden we had, you know, we had like $10 million in cash in our bank in our bank account. <laughs> was, but then later on I found much, much more satisfying places than Toys R Us, which is another story. But but then we did have we had we had several parties and one we went out to dinner with all our 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 advisors and our our team in LA and the limousine was waiting for us and for some reason i decided that was a good time to do a, pre- a home pregnancy test <laughs> and i literally the limo was outside and i did and i realized i was pregnant with my third baby <laughs> so, I, <laughs> so i'm like okay and then we had a big party in Vegas with a whole bunch of friends. <laughs> awesome. Now, there's a few big things I want to cover as we're closing out the episode. I want to try to distill all the awesome advice you've given us, Dan. And the first thing I want to talk about, I want to get that one line that encapsulates Diane's opinion on this thing. Network versus luck. It seems like you really built something out of nothing. And it doesn't sound like it's something you did alone by any means. So how did you go about developing that network for yourself to provide all these opportunities? Okay. So I'm not a religious person, but I have become a spiritual person. And I have realized things now that I look back and I realize that's why I was successful, but they're not necessarily things that I had heard before. So there's a quote, I think it's Susie Orman, and she says, pray like it all depends on God and work like it all depends on you. And another way to phrase that is to be in the right place at the right time. You got to be in a lot of places (laughs) and a lot of times. (laughs) So to be, you, you've got to, you got to work, network, and you've also got to be able to let things go and change your path based on external circumstances that you can't control. And how do you let go of not being able to control those things? That's, it takes a lot of, that's a lot of, uh, a lot of work. And I don't know, honestly, I, I didn't used to let go of control. <laughs> I do now, but that takes a lot of um, personal growth and work, I think. Um, and I think if I had, if I had the tools that I have now, I would have, I would have grown in a, in a probably a very different way to be able to be able to let go. It's not easy, especially for an entrepreneur. But I think that the by letting go of things that you can't that you don't have any control over, that's where you're going to see where the opportunities lie. Like when we like when we almost sold to to the monster.com company TMP, we had no it was very hard to to let go. But we did. But I had to. I had to step back for a little bit and do my do that personal work, in order to be able to see. Okay, what 
can I do next? What is the opportunity in front of me? Because it's not selling to TMP. That's, that's gone. But what can I do to take the next steps to move forward? And then we made the next plan, which was to buy companies. And then in that, someone came and bought us. And that actually is a perfect segue into the other question I have around, I guess I originally had it phrased as getting over failure, but I think the better question is getting back up after you get hit. Because it doesn't matter if it's a failure of your own or if it's some other thing that has caused you to be in this position, you've got to get back moving either way. Any advice on keeping the mindset to keep getting back up? Yeah, it's not, it's not easy. It's, as an entrepreneur, sometimes it seems like life or death if your business is going to succeed. It, it really can become so all-consuming and seeming like a business failing could be, it, it just seems, it can seem so terrible and overwhelming. So putting things in, their pers- in, in perspective is important to me. Distancing yourself from you are, you are not your business you are not your balance sheet. It's, you're, you are not, you're not your business results. And I think that's, that can be, that is a very difficult, I guess, to separate that as an entrepreneur because it does, it can become an extension of you. Yeah, I think there's a lot of, there's a lot of culture within business owners and entrepreneurship and I'm going to call out specifically the tech startup entrepreneurship culture as one where if you don't have those numbers to point back to, if you can't say these things, then no amount of experience in many cases will make you worth listening to in the uh, general population size. Yeah. That's where that, that, that we talked about all the noise and distraction and it's we can get into that mindset of comparing ourselves to other entrepreneurs or feeling like we should we should be at this level or watching other people pitch and there's so much hype around it and that's why i feel like the more that you can stay to the core of what you're doing and take away the more that you can take away the, all these layers of all these terms and words and things you know and pitching and and the more that you can remember that you're it's a business the the more basic, nice. yeah. The more the more the simpler that you can get, I feel like that's that's going to make your entrepreneurial journey more more pleasurable and and also more effective. I guess the last thing I'd want to know from you is decision making and how that compares, how that ties into leadership, because I think it's one of the most overlooked parts. Yeah. So you want to make the right decisions, but you have to make a decision. And that's, I, th- I think the, the worst thing is not making a decision that, you know, you make the best decision you can with the information you have. And something that's extremely important is being able to change, to admit you made a bad decision and move on. It's the fallacy of sunken costs, which I see so many entrepreneurs make that mistake. Well, we've already invested this money. We've already, and the, the fallacy of sunken costs is where you, you basically keep on doing the same thing because you've already invested time and money into it. And that is a huge mistake that a lot of businesses make. It could be a software implementation. It could be, a, or software that you've built you may have spent you may have spent a half a million dollars on something, but if it is not working and it's not it's detrimental to the business, you've got to cut that cord and move on. I have one last question, and we can cut this later. Um, <laughs> I may have been doing a little bit of diving around because I was really interested in. Michael, um, Michael, prom- have- Michael promised me that I get final approval of edits. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Basically, you can remove me from the podcast, but no. Um, I saw on your Instagram a great picture with, I think you had said, oh, so many years together, a good friend of yours. Um, you and I graduated from college at the same time. And 
you had an amazing haircut in that time. As someone who went from, I had a uh, mullet to a rat tail to a suburban mohawk. Um, I have a wild suspicion that maybe we had similar music tastes. I was into all the crazy, give me the violent fans, the Nick Caves, like the esoteric. What type of music did you like back in the day? Yeah, sounds pretty similar to yours. I mean, I love The Clash and The Cure. (laughs) I also love Madonna. (laughs) Yeah. Of course, I love Madonna, you know, <laughs> Cindy <Yeah>. Lauper. <laughs> I actually saw yeah. Cindy Lauper at the Hollywood Bowl a few months right before COVID. Uh, she, that was a good show. <laughs> but I, I love finding like those grungy. I grew up in Dallas and I love finding like the you know, grungy bars and <laughs> that we could get into. Is, you know, but yeah, that sort of yes. like not sort of like not quite punk. But in Dallas, I was just, like kind of, you know. <laughs> yeah, <Almost> or, fine. <laughs> I'm cutting edge, and then you get to it, and you're like, oh. <laughs> right. "I'm suburban." <laughs> now, where can the audience find you online? How do they get in contact with you? I mean, after this interview, I would definitely pick up the phone and call you, and I'm going to recommend the audience do the equivalent of the same. What is that? Where do they find you, Diane? So I'm glad you asked. My website is dianeprince.co.co. And I am currently, I do currently have up there, I'm currently offering free entrepreneurial one session. I don't know how long that's going to last as I... (laughs) I'm I'm building, yeah. (laughs) But that's, that's how they can reach me is through my website, dianeprince.co. Awesome. Diane, thank you for coming on today. Thank you. Thanks so much, guys. This was a lot of fun. Wow. That's it for this episode. Thank you so much for listening. If you want to connect with Diane or Beyond 8 Figures, you can find the links in the show notes on our site or subscribe to the Beyond 8 Figure newsletter to get all the great details of our guests and our show. Also, don't forget to go check out Diane's website, dianeprince.co. And if you're a new entrepreneur looking to take that critical step, you couldn't find a better coach than Diane. This episode of Beyond Eight Figures is over, but your journey as an entrepreneur continues. So if we can help you with anything, please just let us know. And if you like this episode, please share it with someone who might learn from it. Until next time, keep growing, and find the joy in your journey. This is AJ, and I'll be talking to you soon. Bye-bye.